Father, we thank you for your word. We know from many passages of scripture, even the one that will be in this morning, that spiritual sight and spiritual understanding is impossible without the help of the Holy Spirit. So we ask you now to use your word to accomplish your purposes. We ask you to work in spite of the limitations of the preacher and in spite of the limitations of the listeners. We know that you have the ability to give us a blessing and to give us exactly what we need. And we ask in faith for you to do that this morning. And we ask in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're using a Bible from the chairs, then you'll find that on page 1156. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 3 on page 1156. The title of this 2 Corinthians series is How Does Ministry Happen? In 2 Corinthians, Paul is currently defending his ministry from the attacks of the false apostles. And he, as he does this, we get to hear what I have been calling his ministry philosophy. He's answering the question, how does ministry happen? It's important for us to know the answer to that question if we are going to be effective disciple makers in our community. Toward the end of the previous message in this series, towards the end of chapter 2 in 2 Corinthians, Paul asks another question. As he's defending his ministry from the false apostles who want to take his prestige and use it for their own, he asks the readers in chapter 2, verse 16, who is adequate for these things? In some of your translations, it may say, who is sufficient for these things? And if we were to rephrase that in a way that we might ask the question today, maybe we would say, who is good enough for ministry? As he starts to answer that question in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, so follow along as I read. I I believe we do have some slides uh, with uh, the scripture reading on it, so you can follow along either on the screen or in your own Bible. Listen to how Paul starts to answer that question, who is good enough for ministry? Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So as we begin in our passage, those first six verses in the chapter, knowing that we're going to talk about ministry, it will not be helpful this morning for us to have a distinction in our minds between ministry and the Christian life. Let me say that another way. Here at Calvary Baptist Church, we need to recognize that the word ministry is not a vocational word. 
We need to retrain our minds. When you think of someone who is in full-time ministry, you shouldn't only be thinking about a pastor or a missionary. Would you like to know what what I call people in full-time ministry? Christians. One of the doctrines that was recovered in the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, one of those doctrines has been lost again by us, and it is that all of you who claim to know Christ are in full-time ministry. The Reformers believed that your vocation was your calling, and that your vocation was more than just what put food on the table. Your vocation is every one of the roles and responsibilities and relationships that God has given to you. If God really is sovereign, that's what the Reformation was all about, God's sovereignty. If God really is sovereign, he chose that you be a welder or an accountant or a homemaker, a clerk, a photographer, an engineer, a student, a teacher, fill in the blank, whatever it is. God chose it. Of course, this this concept of vocation, as I'm saying, it doesn't only apply to your job. God, in his sovereignty, chose for you to be a father or a mother, a son or a daughter, a husband, a wife, a small group Bible study leader, an uncle, a deacon or a trustee, a neighbor to that weird guy across the street. Everything in your life is something that God has chosen and ordained. Everything we do, every responsibility we have, every relationship has been chosen by God. And here's the thing, it's ministry. It's full-time ministry. If Jesus is your Lord, then your life is ministry for him. And we need to recover and rediscover this doctrine of vocation as calling. You are called to full-time ministry, Calvary Baptist. And Paul is asking Who's adequate? Who is good enough for gospel ministry? Who is good enough to spread the fragrance of Jesus Christ and him crucified to an unbelieving and rebellious world? And when he asked that question, he wasn't intending for the Christians to respond. He wasn't intending for them to respond by saying, well, the guys who went to seminary, the guys who have the most degrees, that's who's adequate. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about real New Testament ministry. And we have to remember that Paul himself, in the book of Ephesians, he wrote in a way that should prevent us from ever thinking of the pastors and missionaries as the only ones that are in ministry. Paul said that Jesus gave pastors to churches to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So a pastor's job is to equip and train others to do ministry, not to do all the ministry himself. The work of ministry involves so many things, but the best summary, the most potent summary of of, uh, ministry is found in the Great Commission. Jesus has all authority, therefore we go and make disciples. And our church's mission statement says it this way, glorifying God by making disciples and a community of grace. Jesus conquered the world, sin, death and the devil, so we go to an unrepentant, rebellious world to proclaim victory. We seek to make disciples who can make more disciples. 
We seek to disciple the nations, knowing that Christ will one day return and finish the job that he began. That's the mission of everyone who claims to know Christ. And to reject the Great Commission is to reject the Commissioner. In other words, if you truly believe in Jesus, you will see this as your life's work. If you're a faker, you won't. In this chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to write about an experience that certain people go through. And this is a two-part series on 2 Corinthians 3, and we'll talk more about that next week. But this week and next week, we're going to talk about the glory of new covenant ministry. Most of us probably know that we should know what the new covenant is and, and that we should know what glory is, but I wouldn't be too surprised if we had a little bit of a fuzzy or blurry definition of both of those words. So we'll talk about the new covenant in just a few minutes, but for now, let's talk about glory, the word glory. That's kind of a weird word. We don't talk like this anymore. It's not one of those words that comes up in conversation every day. Maybe, maybe even as you're thinking about it, you, you know what it is. You know it when you see it, but you have a hard time defining it because you see something like, the Grand Canyon, and you think, that's glorious, that's amazing and beautiful, and you can't help but praise it, and if you know the one who, who made it, you can't help but praise him. But of course, the sight of glory doesn't only come from national landmarks, it can come even from a tree in autumn, or a sunset over the lake, even Ford Lake. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Glory is shining all around us in creation. Some of us are maybe too squeamish to appreciate this one, but the birth of a child is another example of glory and beauty. Glory and beauty being made visible. Obviously, there's a lot of pain involved in the process, but there's something about watching a baby take their first breath that takes our breath away. It's glorious. And I've heard similar things about those who have had the privilege to watch as a confident believer takes their last breath. Once again, not without pain, but it's full of glory to witness that transition from this life to the next one. I'm trying to give you pictures. Let me give you a definition. Glory is the visible manifestation of God's perfect morality and perfect beauty. And God has woven his glory into all of creation. And that's why I'm comfortable calling both a tree and a newborn baby glorious. I'm not so much talking about the tree or the baby as I am the one who made them both. That's glory, the visible manifestation of of God's perfect morality and perfect beauty. It's his beauty and his goodness being revealed in a visible and material way. And the examples I gave are mostly examples of glory shining through creation, but even that is not the way that we see God's glory in the most concentrated form. Actually, the way to see God's glory most clearly is to look at the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God made visible. 
If you want to see the glory of God, if you want to experience the transforming glory that 2 Corinthians 3 talks about, you need to get to know Jesus. This chapter is about how the glory of God is made visible in the new covenant or the new testament. There's a sense in which his glory was veiled and covered up in the Old Testament, but now in the new covenant, it's revealed And the church, through the Spirit, plays a key role in revealing it. So let's get into some of the details of our text. Paul was basically being asked, how do you know that you are adequate? How do you know that you are good enough for ministry? And this is a question that I think we can all relate to. How do you know you're good enough? What makes you think you are sufficient or adequate In Paul's case, the attacks on his ministry are coming from the outside. Other people, false apostles, speaking to him, speaking to others about him. That's where the attack is coming from. But sometimes these attacks on our sufficiency also come from within us, don't they? Self-doubt. What does that look like? Am I really good enough to do what God wants me to do? when I can't even read my Bible and pray every day? That's what self-doubt looks like. Sometimes when I do read my Bible, I don't even remember what I read. I read five verses and find out that my mind has been wandering or thinking about something else, so I've got to go back and try to focus. Or I start to pray about my day, and before you know it, instead of praying about my day, I'm, I'm thinking about my day. And then instead of thinking about my day, I'm planning my day. And then instead of planning my day, I'm stressing about my day. And this occasion when I was supposed to be expressing my reliance and my dependence on God and being refreshed in his presence has turned into an occasion for stress. Or I try to wake up early so that I finally have enough time to read my Bible. And then the alarm goes off and I can't find the will to wake up. Can anyone relate to this? It creates feelings of self-doubt in us. Are we really good enough to do what God wants us to do? I can't even do this. Am I good enough for ministry? I know I should be teaching my kids about the Bible, but at the end of the day, I just want to sit down and kick my feet up and do nothing or maybe watch TV. Can you relate to this? I also know that I'm supposed to be sharing the message with others, but I either get nervous or I feel like a hypocrite whenever I have the opportunity. How do I know if I'm good enough? Paul gives us two answers why he believes that he is good enough for gospel ministry. We'll examine his answers and then see if we can also relate to those. We can relate to the the questions and the feelings of inadequacy. Hopefully, we find in ourselves an ability to relate to the answers that Paul provides. So the first answer that Paul provides, you have some, some blanks in your notes. It looks like our Our PowerPoint isn't working, so I'll try to give them to you verbally. You can always find me after if you need to get all those blanks filled in. But the first one is that we know we are adequate for ministry because we transform others. Listen to Paul in the text as he continues to address the church that's attacking his leadership. He says in verse 1, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you. Now, don't forget that Paul played a key role in establishing this church. In in today's vernacular, we would call him a church planter. And now, 
They, the church plant, want to know his credentials. This is an insult to Paul. In this verse, he's asking, do we really need to show you our credentials? Do we really need to show you that we are genuine? Do you really need proof that we are true ministers of the gospel? Here's some proof for you, Corinthians. Look in the mirror. He continues in verse 2. He says, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Now, this letter that he's referring to is a lot like what we would do with resumes today. A potential employer wants to know if you're qualified and able to do the tasks that he has for you. So he asks for a resume that outlines your skills and your experience. Paul is telling the Corinthians that they are his incarnate resume. The fact that they have a changed life, the fact that they are living for Christ in a pagan society, even the fact that they are squabbling over which teacher represents Jesus better. All of this shows that at least they actually care about Jesus. Their life has been changed, and guess who was there at the beginning? Paul was. Paul started this church, and he started this transformation in their lives. In verse 3, Paul illustrates even further how they are a letter of commendation for him. He says in verse 3, being manifested, or it is shown, that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now that's a very full verse. It says that the letter is of Christ, meaning that Christ wrote the letter. It's from him. The letter is from Christ. That's a big statement by Paul. Who is it that's commending my authority? Oh, that's right. It's Jesus. It's hard to have a comeback against that one. When I first applied for the open position here as associate pastor, I was uh, supposed to give Pastor Jim some of my references. And I have a feeling that if I wrote Jesus Christ as one of my references for this job, that I wouldn't have gotten a call back. Just a guess. But Paul is able to do this in a serious way, isn't he? He was literally selected on the Damascus Road to be an apostle for Jesus. Just like the 12 were handpicked by Jesus, so was Paul. The Corinthians are a reference letter that Jesus wrote with the Holy Spirit. The Corinthians should know about Paul's adequacy for ministry based on the ministry that he performed in their lives. Christ sent Paul into ministry with the Spirit. If we are going to feel good enough for gospel ministry, it's going to be a result of us believing that Christ sent us into ministry with the Spirit. Paul doesn't appeal to his speaking skills or his good looks or his administrative expertise, not even his deep pockets, his theological knowledge, none of that. The first part of his defense is all about what Christ has accomplished through him. Christ used Paul to save the Corinthians from paganism. Of course, we're speaking from a human perspective. We know, of course, that Paul didn't do it alone. That's why in verse 3 it says that this resume is written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God and not on tablets of stone, 
but on tablets of human hearts. So it's not ink, not on stone, but with the Spirit, on human hearts. He's referencing multiple things in the Old Testament. Tablets of stone is probably the more obvious, referring to the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments where God wrote the law with his finger. This is a reference to the Old Testament law, the old covenant that Israel had been under for the previous 1,500 years, the old covenant of which Paul, as a Pharisee, was a master teacher. Paul says that this letter of recommendation from Jesus was not written on stone tablets like the old covenant, but it was written on tablets of human hearts. What does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says tablets of human hearts? Well, he's talking about the new covenant, which was predicted in Jeremiah 31. If you'd like to keep your finger here and see Jeremiah 31 talking about the new covenant, you may turn there, but I'll read it out loud for you if you'd rather stay in 2 Corinthians. The best way to interpret and understand Scripture is to use Scripture, so we're going to let Jeremiah explain the new covenant for us. He says in Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse number 31, that behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So the law, the old covenant, provided a covering and a temporary atonement for sins. The sacrifices of animals in the law provided a picture of the coming sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah, who would not only cover sins, he would completely forgive them and remember them no more. The law didn't forgive these sins. An offense against a holy God cannot be paid for with livestock. Only the blood of Jesus is a payment large enough to cover the debt that we have acquired as a result of our sin. So the law was good temporarily, but it wasn't enough. Here's another reason that the old covenant of the law isn't enough. No Holy Spirit. When the Old Testament Israelites expressed faith in God, by choosing to submit to the law, they did not receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was active even from the beginning of the, the first year of the Bible. The Holy Spirit was active, hovering over the face of the waters during creation. But the Holy Spirit did not permanently indwell believers until the church began after Christ rose again and went to the Father. That's why Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away because then I will send the helper. So Jesus' plan was to invade earth, make some disciples, defeat sin and death by rising again, and then pass along the power to defeat sin and death 
by ascending to the Father and sending the Holy Spirit down. Another passage that Paul is building on in this, these first few verses is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. You don't need to turn there because I'll just read a quick section. But it also mentions the new heart of flesh compared with the old heart of stone. And it mentions the Holy Spirit. So these are the, these are the Old Testament passages that Paul is building on as he writes this letter to the Corinthians. In Ezekiel 36, Paul, uh, the Ezekiel says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, Ezekiel speaking on behalf of God, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So the Holy Spirit is what makes the new covenant unique. This concept of old covenant versus new covenant, law versus gospel is central to Paul's philosophy of how ministry happens. A Jew who was still trying to please God by keeping the commandments and by keeping the law, someone who did that misunderstood what Jesus accomplished and what the Spirit enables. God's people no longer need sacrificial lambs. They have Jesus, the perfect lamb that all sacrificed lambs were pointing to. God doesn't write laws on stone anymore. He writes them on hearts. And he doesn't write laws with ink anymore. He writes them with his spirit, the third member of the Trinity. And what I want you to see here is that when God does this, when he carries out the new covenant by writing on human hearts with the Holy Spirit, he is doing more than just pulling someone off of the road that leads to hell. As if that wasn't enough. He's doing more. He's sending them into ministry. Jeremiah said that God would write the law on people's hearts. And then Paul said to the Corinthians that they were written on his heart and that Jesus put them there. The gospel that saves us also sends us to others. So when you are faced with the question, are you adequate or are you good enough for ministry? That question is really the same question as, did God save you? You don't get to choose. You don't get one without the other. When God saves someone, he gives them a mission and a purpose. You don't get to be saved and not work on the mission that he gave you. Zero people are called to that life. Zero people are called to just be saved and live the same or to not change the purpose and priorities of their life. That's not how the new covenant works. That's not how having the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit changes the way we live. It changes our priorities. It changes what we care about. It changes what we love. If the gospel is written on your heart by Jesus, you have the responsibility to write the gospel on the hearts of others. And this truth needs to penetrate us because so many live a missionless Christianity and a purposeless life? Do you really think that Jesus came to die so that you could play video games or build up the 401k or live a life of leisure or obsess over your favorite team or or travel or do whatever it is that's pulling you away from God's people and God's purpose for your life? When Christ saves someone, he intends for them to be in full-time ministry. And you won't think that you're cut out for that if you're constantly looking inward, 
constantly looking for validation because of some skill that you have or something that you've done. It's, it's not about skill. The reason we're good enough is because Christ rose again, ascended to the Father, and sent the Spirit. And we know that we're adequate because he's enabled us to pass along that Spirit and transform others. But that's not all Christ has done. Paul gives another answer to the question, how do you know you're adequate for ministry? He says, we know we're adequate for ministry. Second answer, because Christ transformed us. Let me read verses 4, 5, and 6 of our passage. We know we're adequate for ministry because Christ transformed us. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If you habitually rehearse the gospel and, and preach the gospel to yourself every day, like, like Jerry Bridges said we should, then you probably have come to realize just how sinful and how helpless you were before Christ transformed you. The theological name for this is called total depravity. This passage wouldn't ordinarily be used to, to prove total depravity, but we see it there. Says not in, in verse 5, it says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate. You can't get more gospel than this. This is the beginning of the gospel when we realize our sin, we realize our need for a Savior. This is another one of the doctrines that was recovered in the Reformation 500 years ago, and it's one of the doctrines that we'll be singing about for all eternity. There wasn't anything lovely about you when God saved you. You didn't bring anything to the table. He doesn't need you. He's not incomplete without you. The only reason you're useful is because you have his spirit, if you know Christ. And he can accomplish his mission and his plan with or without you. We don't contribute in ourselves to God's plan. Anything good that we do is a result of him working through us. How does, how does the old hymn say it? Rock of ages. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We're so dependent on him in order to be good enough for ministry? Is that song a picture of your attitude toward Christ? Do you pray like that? Is that how you think about your salvation? Let's look again at how Paul said it. I don't want you to think I'm making this up. Verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. This is Paul saying this. Paul, who was a Pharisee, some say he had the equivalent of two PhDs. He said, I couldn't do anything. I wasn't adequate for anything without God. And he keeps going in verse 6. God made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Once again, Paul notes, 
There's something special about being a minister of the new covenant rather than the old covenant. A new testament, testament's just another word for covenant. A new testament believer has a different calling than an Old Testament Israelite. Are they saved from their sin in the same way? Yes. Faith in the promises of God is what saves, always, from Genesis to Revelation. If Adam and Eve had faith that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and that's how they were saved. They had faith in God's promise. Now we know more. We know that Jesus was the, the snake crusher, and he's the one who paid for our sin. It's always faith in the promises of God that saves. But the mission of discipling the nations didn't begin until the ascension of Christ and the arrival of the Spirit, the church age that we're living in now. The point is, we are adequate for that mission now, all because of the cross of Jesus. Just just think about what we communicate, intentionally or not. Think about what we communicate when we accept Christ, but we don't accept his mission. We're saying that the gospel is good enough to wipe our sinful slate clean. It's good enough to clothe us in righteousness so that we can boldly approach the throne of grace in prayer. It makes us a priest who can communicate directly with God. It gives us a name better than sons and daughters. We become fellow heirs with Christ and partakers in the divine nature. Somehow it does all of that, but it doesn't equip us to point others to Jesus. It doesn't give us the boldness necessary to call evil evil and good good or to stand up for what God says in a Christless culture. I'm not looking for you to shove the gospel down everyone's throat in an unhelpful way. But if you have, if you do know Christ, you do have a unique role in fulfilling the Great Commission. So far today, all that we've done is answer the question, who is adequate for these things? The question that Paul asked. Who's good enough for ministry? And essentially the answer has been that nobody in their own strength is good enough. But we know because of the new covenant and because of the the spirit that is given by Jesus that we don't have to operate in our own strength. God works through us. We also know that God is working through us if we have transformed others and if Christ has transformed us. That's what Paul is saying essentially. But the big idea to remember from these six verses, your next blanks, I believe, is that ministry happens when we find our worth in Christ. When you believe that and someone asks you, what makes you good enough for ministry? You can respond like Paul and say, I'm not. But look what God has done through me anyway. Ministry happens when we find our worth in Christ. And for the, for the final minutes that I have your attention I'd like to build on that truth. When we find our worth in Christ, we will be content fulfilling our unique role in the Great Commission. When we find our worth in Christ, we will be content fulfilling our unique role in the Great Commission. So there's different kinds of commands in Scripture. Something that makes the Great Commission unique is that it is a corporate command. It's given to the church, not to one individual. An individual command would either be obeyed or not obeyed based on whether the individual does or does not do that thing that God says. 
a corporate command could be fulfilled by a church even if 10 people were dragging their feet and not very involved. On the flip side, if there was only one person passionate about fulfilling the Great Commission, then they would not be able to obey because it's not a one-person thing. It's a team effort, a corporate command. God never intended for the Great Commission to be fulfilled by one really talented individual or by one charismatic speaker or by one rich donor or by one intriguing apologist or one prolific writer. It's not a one-person thing. It's a church thing. And obedience to the Great Commission happens corporately. And that's meant to be liberating because it takes a lot of different types of people, a lot of different personalities to, re- to reach a community. Not everyone is great at fulfilling every step in the disciple-making process. Not everyone can, can go to Walmart and strike up a conversation with a stranger and share the gospel with them in a concise and understandable way. There are people who can do that, and that's amazing. And in my prideful moments, those are the people that I get envious of. There are other individuals, sometimes couples, that are really good at opening up their home and making people comfortable, friends and strangers, and they steer conversations towards spiritual things. Some people understand children in a unique way, and they can crawl into the mind and the heart of a child and plant the gospel right where it needs to be in order to grow and flourish. Some people can stand in front of hundreds of people and present the gospel clearly and passionately. Some are skilled at meeting physical, tangible needs. They give a a cup of cold water in the name of Christ and boldly share the gospel as they do it. Some can enter life at the moment of crisis and give gospel hope and gospel peace to a hurting individual. But almost nobody is great at doing all of those things that I listed. Almost nobody can present the gospel well in each of those scenarios. In order to fulfill the corporate command of discipling the nations, we need a congregation who understands this and is willing to play their unique role in the body of Christ when we as a church attempt to proclaim the good news of Jesus. So we do need all of you on board with evangelistic efforts. We need everyone to understand why this church exists. It's not coffee hour. It's not social hour. It's not here to meet felt needs. This is an embassy for kingdom work, and we need to reclaim the seriousness of the mission that Jesus gave us. We need all of you on board, but we also need to recognize that a variety of work needs to be done by a variety of people. A physical body works because there are different parts working together to accomplish one thing. A football or soccer team works when everyone knows their job, everyone knows where they fit in, and and what goes into their role. The same is true of the church. And I know how sinful humans think. I know my own heart. And if I were to hear a preacher say, you know, not everyone is great at going to Walmart and talking to strangers about the gospel— there's a part of me that would be relieved. <laughs> Phew, I don't, I don't have to feel guilty about not sharing the gospel anymore. That's not what I'm trying to say. My argument here is not that we don't have to do anything that makes us uncomfortable. My argument is that when we find our worth in Christ, we are free to do the things that we maybe wouldn't choose if we didn't have the Holy Spirit. We're no longer enslaved 
to do only the things that we want or only the things that we enjoy. Because you might say, I love working in the kitchen, or I love working with this specific age group of kids, and that's great. Do that. But, you, but if you start to say, I'm going to fight to keep this position of serving because that's how I want to serve God, you see how that starts to get into an area we maybe don't want to go. You see something wrong with that. It's great if you have an area where you think you excel. You'll probably get to serve in that way sometimes. But when we remember that our worth is in Christ and not in what we do, when we remember that the Great Commission is a corporate command that takes many different people working on it together, the result is that some of us will do some work that we would not have chosen to do if it was up to us alone. When we find our worth in Christ, we become comfortable playing our unique role in Great Commission work. And next week, as we continue discussing this chapter and implications for our lives, we're going to look even longer at the transforming glory that's referred to in verse 18 and others. And when we see that transforming glory, it doesn't only transform us from glory to glory, but it also gives us a boldness that we desperately need if we're going to reach people with the gospel of Christ. Let's close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for this church family and their desire to serve you, their desire to love you by loving others. Let your word penetrate us. Let the message of the gospel dwell in us so that it spills out in all areas of our life. Help us to not find our worth in our own things, our own talents, our own skills, our own abilities, but that we would recognize the vital role that the Spirit plays in this church and in our own individual hearts, and that it would cause us to give you more and more glory and just constantly be reflecting glory that, that we could try to keep, but instead we give it freely to you. I pray that would be increasingly true in this church. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen.